Exodus chapter 20, and I'll be reading the first 17 verses of Exodus 20. Listen now to the reading of God's holy word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates." For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Seek the Lord's blessing on this, his word. O Lord God in heaven, we do praise you and thank you again that we have this great privilege to come before you to give praise to your name and to look to your word. And as we consider this passage, this uh, topic this evening, considering the law, uh, we just pray that you would give us understanding by your spirit. Help us to see the truth that is here. Help us to rightly understand the role and the purpose of the law uh, in our hearts and in our lives uh, for your people. And so we just pray that you'd be with us and that you bless our time. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, this evening we come to, in our study of the confessional themes, we come to uh, chapter 19, which is of the law of God. And the first thing that we notice, in looking at the confession at least, is that the law of God is <clears throat> excuse me, what we may call covenantal in nature. And that is, uh, when God gave his law to man, he did so in order to engage in a covenantal relationship with man. <clears throat> and though we certainly uh, read the most common expression of this law, as we just did from uh, Exodus 20, we know that the law of God actually goes back further than Exodus 20 to the very beginning, when God gave this law to Adam in the garden and then established a covenant with him. And so the confession opens up and begins this way, God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works, by which he bound him in all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, 
promised life upon the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it and endured him with the power and ability to keep it. The covenant of works, or the covenant of life as it's sometimes called, which God established with Adam in the garden, was a revelation of God whereby God, uh, the creator, sought again to engage in a relationship with man, the creature, by revealing to Adam what was expected, not only of Adam, but also all Adam's posterity after him. God was revealing to to Adam here his will and ultimately his law. We find this revelation of the, the covenant relationship in Genesis 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden and to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded, so there's the law, commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now this revelation of God's law shows us several things about God. First, God here is here revealing to Adam that he desired to be in a relationship with mankind. Again, if Adam and his posterity would obey God's law, well then that relationship would continue uh, un, uh, un, unhindered. But if they disobeyed, well then of course the relationship would be disrupted. And of course, the, the, by this revelation of his law, God was also showing Adam that he alone is the lawgiver. In James 4, we read this, There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. And of course, that is God the Lord, the Creator. And so Adam received this standard, this law from God. And as a standard, if he heard any other law that was contrary to what God revealed... Well, he would know that it wasn't God's law. And he should have kept that in mind once the serpent appeared. But, of course, he did not. And he failed to say anything. Thirdly, God was revealing himself here by giving this, uh, this command to be a holy God. You know, that Adam was created in God's image, which included the attribute of, of holiness, original righteousness. But revealing the law to Adam... God was reminding to Adam that he also must be holy as God is holy. And so in this way, the law revealed was the guide given for Adam to walk in the holiness with which he was created. And then fourthly, by revealing his will and his law to Adam, God was showing himself to be a most good and gracious God. You see, God could have simply just let Adam alone and let him figure out on his own what was expected and what he, he was supposed to do. But God revealed to Adam very clearly and very succinctly what was expected. Obedience. Adam could never claim then the excuse, Well, you never told me. By revealing his law, God had left not only Adam, but again all mankind after him without excuse. Well, the law that God revealed to Adam is also called the moral law of God. And often when we think of the moral law, we again think only of the Ten Commandments. But as we'll see, the Ten Commandments are just an expansion of this first law that God had given. In fact, the moral law of God takes on three different forms throughout the Scriptures. In Genesis 2... 
we have that we had that most basic form of the moral law, right? God gave this one simple command not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the essence of that command can be summed up this way obey and live, disobey and die. Or obey and remain moral and retain the holy image of God, or disobey and become immoral and lose true holiness. So God commanded, and he expected Adam to obey. But of course, as we know, Adam didn't obey and fell into sin. And then the effect of Adam's sin made him and all his posterity then afterwards incapable of perfect obedience to God's moral law. Adam became dead in his sins and transgressions and could do no good work. And therefore all those born from Adam are born in the same way, dead in sins and transgressions, unable to do any good work. But the moral law of God still stood, and again, as the Confession notes in paragraph 2, that this law, after his fall, continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness. So God still demanded obedience, and as such was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments, and written in two tables. And so God, again, still expected this perfect obedience even after the fall. But because God knew man couldn't perfectly obey, we knew that God allowed for the substitutionary sacrifices to atone for man's shortcomings. Right? And so the whole sacrificial system was intended to avert God's wrath and his curse for sin as well as to satisfy God's justice through the death and shedding of blood of the animal that was to be sacrificed. (coughs) Well, another gracious allowance which was given at Sinai, Mount Sinai, uh, to the Israelites when God again entered into a covenant with his people. This time, though, not as a covenant of works, but rather as the duties and obligations of the covenant of grace. You see, since God had just delivered the Israelites out of slavery and bondage in Egypt, a deliverance that was truly flowing out of His abounding grace and mercy, well, then the moral law then given to Israel wasn't to secure or maintain their salvation or to maintain life, but was a way that they could demonstrate their gratitude to God for His gracious salvation. Indeed, this is why the Ten Commandments are uh, preceded by the historical reminder of this great salvation. We see this here in Exodus uh, 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That's there to remind the people that God delivered them. He saved them. They're his people. And then beginning at verse 3, he's basically telling, telling them, this is how you are now to live as my people. Again, though the Ten Commandments were tied to the covenant of grace, the revelation, though, to Israel was a true expansion of the same law that God had given back in the garden. An expansion in, the, in, in such a way that it was more detailed in exactly what constituted obedience and what constituted disobedience. And so... We have the law, the Ten Commandments, right? The summary 
of the Ten Commandments, no other gods uh, before the one true God. We're not to make any graven images. Uh, we're to only worship God as He commands. We're not to take the Lord's name in vain. Uh, we're to keep the Sabbath day holy. We're to honor our parents and those in authority that the Lord has placed over us. We're not to murder, not to commit adultery, not to steal, not to lie, and not to covet. That's important to note two things here. Again, the law given at Sinai, the Ten Commandments, were still means, meant as guides for obedience and holiness for not only the people of God Israel, but since they were an expansion of the initial law God gave to Adam in the garden, will they then become binding upon all humanity as well. That is, those who are descended from uh, Adam. And so the moral law of God is universal, and indeed it will be the moral law of God which will be the universal standard by which God will judge all the earth. Though for the people of God, those who are redeemed in Christ Jesus, the Ten Commandments maintain that the coven that covenantal aspect as the moral law now lays out it's not only the standard for righteousness, but it also lays out how we are to live as the people of God, how we ought to love God, and how we are to serve Him. Well, secondly, the Ten Commandments themselves are broad general headings under which we can find a various assortment of other laws and categories of sin uh, which can be drawn from them. And of course, there's a, if you look in the, the section of the Westminster Larger Catechism on the Ten Commandments, and you can see uh, how those categories are fleshed out and, and all the sins that can be uh, considered under each of these individual commandments. And, of course, we even see this in the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Uh, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So here, Jesus includes not only murder and bloodshedding in the Sixth Commandment, but also hatred and unjust anger. And of course, he then goes on to give other examples, for example, in relation to adultery and lust, and how lust is basically uh, falls under the heading of the Seventh Commandment. But the moral law of God, you know, the, the law first given to, to Adam, and we have the Ten Commandments, but it takes on another form in the New Testament. And it's a summarizing, then, of the Ten Commandments. And the Confession notes this, that the four first commandments containing our duty towards God, and the other six, our duty to man. And so this breakdown of the Ten Commandments is summarized in what is often referred to as the two love commands. And again, in Matthew 22, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. 
And so these commands then, of course, are then repeated throughout the New Testament. We've already, in the morning, we've in our study of James, we've seen uh, how James even uh, refers to uh, these two commandments as well. Again, as a summary of all of the moral law of God, as, as a summary of the Ten Commandments. It's also too important to note here what Jesus says as well, that on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so Jesus is, himself is the one who's making it clear that these two commands were actually just a summary of what had come before it in the Ten Commandments. Now this is very important for us to remember uh, because there are some, even among Christians, sadly, some who seek to drive a wedge between the various forms of God's moral law that we find in the Scriptures. And they want to cling to just these two love commands, but they don't want to have anything to do with the Old Testament moral law in the covenant of works or in the Ten Commandments. For whatever reason, they don't see the inherent unity that exists and that even Jesus himself points out. The law given to Adam, we consider God's simple command, it actually involves several of what we can find later in the Ten Commandments, especially when we consider the particular temptation that was set before them uh, through the serpent. And one of these would be, you know, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before yourself. Well, that includes not making yourself a god. And what did Satan say? Satan said, look, you, God doesn't want you to take partake of this because he knows when you eat of it, you will be like him. And that, of course, was one of the things as they, they uh, were committing idolatry by desiring to be like God. And along with that, they were not to worship themselves. They were not to twist God's word, which would also then be uh, aligned with taking the Lord's name in vain. And again, uh, Satan twisted the words, but uh, they clung to it and did not correct him. Of course, if they disobeyed God, there would be no rest. And so the fourth commandment would be violated. Uh, Adam and Eve didn't have parents. The only parent they had was God. Well, they certainly, certainly did not honor him uh, as the authority over them. The sixth commandment, murder. Well, what did God said would say would be the punishment if they disobeyed? They would die. They brought death. Not only death to themselves, but they also brought death to all their posterity after them. Adultery. The seventh commandment brought this course brought disruption and sin brought disruption in the marital relationship, especially uh, as the bride of Christ now being uh, separated from uh, from the Lord. Stealing. The eighth commandment. They took what was did not belong to them and what they had been told that they ought not to take. And of course, led to lying. Uh, hiding from God uh, after they sinned and then pushing the responsibility on to uh, everyone else would be construed under lying. And then, of course, it all began with the desire and how good it looked to eat. And there was a sense of coveting. And we see that in reference to Eve where she looked at it and saw that it was good to eat and desired to eat of it. And she ate and then gave to her husband also, and he ate. Again, not being content with 
all that God had given them, they desired more. And so they then were guilty of violating the the 10th commandment as well. And so it's also clear to see that Adam violated also even the love commands that we find in the New Testament. He did this by not loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Especially in light of the fact that Jesus had said in John 14, If you love me, keep my commandments. Well, he did not keep God's commandments. He did not show his love for God. But also, Adam didn't love his neighbor as himself. By falling into sin, not only did he not love himself, he did not love Eve, and of course he did not show love and care and concern for all his posterity after him. His disobedience plunged the whole human race into an estate of sin and misery. And so he is guilty of violating all these laws. And so again, we see the clear connection between this law God gave to Adam and the Ten Commandments and the two love commands. But again, when we look at the love commands... And again, thinking about those who uh, would try to argue that the two love commands have nothing to do with the Ten Commandments, but also there's unity with both of these Old Testament forms. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 13, "Owe Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commands, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet... And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so the Paul is, again, making the clear connection that you're loving your neighbor yourself. If you don't do these, that's the summary of uh, loving your neighbor. So again, we ask, well, how are you to define, right? Uh, that's a good question to ask people. How do you define uh, how do you love your neighbor? What does that look like? Well, look at the six commands of the, uh, the the last six commands of the Ten Commandments. The love command is only a summary of what God previously had given in the Old Testament. And if the last six commands are summarized in the second love command, well, then that we could equally ask: How are we to define what it means to love God with all our hearts, souls, minds, and strength? Is it not by having no other gods other than the one true living God revealed through Jesus Christ? Is it not by keeping ourselves from idols or false worship? Is it not by keeping pure and holy the name of God and His Word and His works? And is it not by gathering together on the Lord's Day as, the, as a day of worship and day of rest, even as God has commanded us? And so again, the moral law of God has been revealed by God in different forms throughout history, But it's still one unified law. And as we'll consider in a couple weeks, it's still an obligation for all, both believer and unbeliever. But there are two other types of law that we find in the scriptures and that we find the confession mentions. There's the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law would include things like the ritual cleansings, the sacrificial system, the offerings, the feasts, the festivals, and all the dietary laws. And then, of course, we have the civil laws. This was, these are the laws of government, uh, dealing with the theocracy of Israel, uh, and the particular punishments and judgments for various crimes. Now, these were meant to be obeyed and observed 
in Israel alone. They were not universal. These were not laws given at creation as the moral law of God was. And so they're not meant for all of mankind in all ages and at all times. And again, it's important to make that distinction because people liked, especially when they want to criticize uh, the law of God, uh, they want to lump all these things together. Well, why, you know, if you hold up this portion of God's law, why are you eating shellfish and why are you, uh, you know, wearing mixed clothing or whatever the, the things may be? Well, it's because they were part of the, the ceremonial laws and the civil laws that God had given to Israel. And uh, they don't apply to us in that regard. They've been uh, fulfilled or abrogated that is done away with. Again, many of the, the ritual and ceremony, in fact, all the ritual and ceremonial laws have ultimately been fulfilled in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even we see this, uh, God making very clear, uh, because after 70 AD, the sacrifices ceased in Israel even to this day. Because Christ is our Passover lamb that was sacrificed for us. There is to be no other. The feasts that God appointed for Israel, again, all pointed to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now that he's come, well, they're no longer binding on the people of God. And the civil laws were, again, were restricted to Israel. Now, we could make a case for the current nation of Israel to govern itself after these laws, but, of course, the secular state of today's Israel is really far from the Israel of David. It's not necessarily the same kind of nation. But these civil laws aren't binding on other nations, and they aren't binding on the church, except, as the confession notes, the general equity thereof may require and basically this means that what was common to the moral law. And so uh, the fact that there were judgments for murder given to Israel, particular judgments, well that tells us that we should also punish murder. Not necessarily in the same way, but murder should be punished. Well then finally, we remember that the law of God was truly given to us as a blessing Again, so that we might know how to please and serve God, our Creator. And all those who are beneficiaries of God's grace through Jesus Christ, the law shows us how we can demonstrate our gratitude to God for the glorious gift of salvation that He's given us. And so truly, for these reasons, we ought then to delight in the law of God as we seek to glorify the Lord in our lives by loving Him and serving Him in obeying His commands. Let's pray. <clears throat> o gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do praise You and thank You for Your gift of the law to us. And that You, by revealing Your law, have shown us that You are a holy and just God. And that you what you require of us, how we're to live, that we have no question, we have no excuse. Because you have clearly revealed to us how we are to live. And what pleases you. And especially now as we walk in grace and the newness of life through the Lord Jesus Christ. We look to the law to show us how we can demonstrate our gratitude to you and our love to you. Because of all that you have done for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we know that, that righteousness 
and life doesn't come from the law. We know that it only comes by your grace and your mercy. But Father, you have given us your law so that we can truly glorify and serve you and so that we can be drawn closer and closer to that perfect image of the Lord Jesus Christ who alone perfectly kept your law so that we might have that once for all perfect sacrifice for our sins, that we might have the perfect mediator between God and man who would give himself and who would secure for us salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. So we just praise you and thank you, Lord, for this reminder. We thank you again for this, the Lord's Day, and our opportunity to be able to gather together, to worship, to fellowship. And we just pray that as we go about our usual activities and duties this week, that we would truly be mindful of your truth that we've gleaned on this day, and that we would be equipped and ready to be faithful witnesses for your glory and your word in all that we do. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.